I'm Allie of Hocus Pocus Collector. And I'm Will of Spooky Will. And we are the Black Flame Society. We're here to share Halloween, Hocus Pocus, and other spooky news and updates with you. While having fun, meeting friends, and making every day feel like it's Halloween. So come on in and join the society. On today's episode of the Black Flame Society, we had the pleasure of sitting down with the one and only Tony Gardner. Tony is the man responsible for Billy Butcherson's makeup, making his head fall off, making Binks the cat in Hocus Pocus 1, making him move all of the animatronics. And that is just a tiny little piece of what Tony has done over the past 30 plus years. Tony is coming back for Hocus Pocus 2 to bring Billy Butcherson back to life. And we are so excited to see how he does that. This interview, Tony tells us a lot of fun stuff about Hocus Pocus 1, Hocus Pocus 2, and a bunch of his other projects. So join us as we sit down with Tony Gardner. Hi, Tony. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is an honor and a pleasure to have you on the Black Flame Society. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I I enjoy everything you guys do. So this is very cool. Thank you. Thank you. We interviewed... Yes, we interviewed your friend David Kirshner, who spoke so, so highly of you. And I said to Will, I was like, we need to talk to Tony. We need to get him on here. David's a genius. He's he's so modest about everything, but he's so talented. For somebody to have achieved Hocus Pocus and Child's Play, and you know, two franchises that are are like beloved by people, I think it just speaks miles on on how how great he is. As are you. You have created some amazing things over the years that we're very excited to talk about. So obviously, we're a Hocus Pocus themed podcast. So let's just start with Hocus Pocus. So you worked on the original in 93 as a makeup effects designer, a special effects makeup artist, and the animatronic cat effects artist. (laughs) Tell us about all of those experiences and how it went down. Okay, well, the first two are obviously zombie related. Our beloved Billy. Yeah, and then the rest was Binks. Originally, Binks was going to just be a cat. And then David Kirshner talked to me about the idea of doing an animatronic cat so that Binks could talk like a person since it was the embodiment of a boy. One of the ideas in the very beginning was that Binks would gesture and talk, you know, like with his hands like a person would so that it wouldn't quite be a cat. That was sort of where we went down the road originally. And then that sort of grew into the idea of doing an oversized close-up head of him, sort of like what they did with Gizmo for Gremlins. Okay. If, you know, you've got a tiny little head and you want to go close-up on it, and it's fake, it starts to sort of fall apart at a certain close-up lens. So the idea was to build a Binks head that was about two feet wide, so we could get all the mouth articulation for the phonetic mouth shapes and all that, and get a little more expression than a real cat head. That's the road that we started down on the cat. And then at the same time in the script, I had read there was a zombie and the witches turned into very demonic old crone versions of witches. And the two boys that ended up in the cage had their life draining from them and turned into old men. And the little girl who drained in the chair, you know, uh, Thackeray's younger sister, gets all the life sucked out of her and she's a husk of a, of a human and just sort of like a, a shell that just kind of like falls forward. There's a lot of stuff in the in Mick Garris's original script that was a lot darker and really cool makeup effects kind of stuff. So I was kind of involved in doing design work for all of that. We designed the two boys as old men and we did a ton of designs of Bette Midler through various stages of like a demonic witch, a vampiric witch, a an old crone, a very traditional like hunchbacked, taloned, long fanged sort of creature almost as well. So we're really into all these different things all at the same time, and it was it was really fun. And this was pre Photoshop, so <laughs> they were all like color pencil sketches, uh, except for the cat. It's like everybody knows what a cat looks like. Okay, we can get right into that one. So I kind of got involved in all of it at at the same time. I guess the question is, which one do you want me to talk about first? (laughs) Let's start with Billy. Let's go down the Billy. How did you imagine? Yeah, tell us about like how you imagined Billy in your head and how did it look like when Doug portrayed him on screen? Okay, I my take on Billy was he was sort of Ichabod Crane, but cooler. (laughs) He was skinny and gangly and had long hair and a ponytail sort of the the frock coat of the time period. That's kind of how I originally saw him uh, as far as like the the broad strokes went. And then as far as the look of his skin, his body, 
it was really more about what would be Disney appropriate. And that was kind of a tough one to figure out because the, one of the very first meetings, I remember them saying, all right, there's a zombie. His mouth is stitched shut and it can't be too gross. And he's going to get his head chopped off and walk around minus a head. He's going to carry his severed head. He's going to get all his fingers sliced off. But make this family friendly. This is a Disney film. <laughs> That's super easy, right, Tony? <laughs> yeah. So those, two, those ideas didn't sort of really merge, but that also helped really sort of define what he looked like in a way, because I, I kept thinking, well, the idea of like dried wood, dried sticks, when you break a stick or a twig, that would be like his fingers or his head. And it would be sort of like dried wood inside as opposed to anything that's gory. And that sort of led to the idea of the lines and the, the gauntness in his face having not really quite a tree look to it, but, but sort of uh, a sense of the skin tightening and, and pulling in tight on it and all the lines being a little more vertical to help sell his thinness, but also and to accentuate the bone structure, but also to help make him look genuinely sort of like dried out, like he was emaciated. And I thought that sort of lent itself to the idea of the little girl having her life force drained and being sort of like a dried husk of, of a body. So I kind of went down that road as far as the aesthetics. And then I remember seeing on TV, there were these Mac Tonight commercials playing for McDonald's. And it was this tall, skinny guy, with this giant like crescent moon head running around. And he's like sliding down a banister and he's on a piano playing a piano and he's singing and just super animated and the facial expression is is a very pleasant happy look to it and i'm like whoever is in that has got to be miserable because it's the head is huge <laughs> and i'm sure can't see and it's really hot but they're making this character look so fun and so great whoever that guy is i feel like he'd be genius for the zombie and he's obviously very skinny the character wears a very skin tight sort of suit i i went on a little hunt to figure out who built the the moonhead found him, asked him who the actor was that was inside the, the suit. And he said it was this guy named Doug Jones, who was super skinny and, and very positive and very upbeat and, and a lot of fun to work with. And I asked if they had a head cast of Doug by any chance. And he did. He had one out behind his garage, then in the rain. It was like a year or two old at that point. It had paint on it. It was just a mess. But it still had all of Doug's proportions. And I'm like, I want to I want to sculpt a, a rough idea of this character on Doug's life cast and see what he would look like. Doug's just so thin and, and has a, a great long face and all that. It, it just felt like all the designs that we were sketching really came to life on on his life cast, just in clay, just in green clay. And then went and added a sculpted like a collar and sculpted some big, crazy hair on it. I saw the hair sort of like a punk rocker sort of vibe, sort of like Susie and the Banshees or Adam Ant kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, just sort of like rough that out on it. And I felt like we really had, we really had Billy sort of figured out like right away. And I, I remember sending pictures to, of the sculpture to Ralph Winter and David Kirshner saying that I, I feel like we're going down the right path with this guy. And they said, really like the look of it. I said, well, if you want this look, you really need to hire this guy. You have to at least audition him. There's no way to duplicate this on somebody else because Doug's features are very specific and the proportions will change. So that was my intro to Doug. I, I, I met his life cast. I didn't meet him. <laughs> and and we, we pitched him. And then the rest was Doug being Doug and going in and knocking it out of the park, selling everybody on him. He'd already done a lot of other stuff like on Batman and stuff like that. So he had a great resume and he had like a great reel. Once we knew we had him and that he was a contortionist and he could do all this crazy physical stuff, it was like, all of a sudden, it was like the sky's the limit uh, with what this character would be capable of doing. And then we had to sort of reverse engineer from there. Okay, if Doug is six foot three and he's a zombie and he gets his head cut off, how do we make that work practically? Again, because there was no digital effects opportunities in the, in the day at the time. And uh, my thinking was, well, we'll find an actress uh, we just worked with an actress named Karen Malkus on a movie called Hideous Mutant Freaks that Alex Winter directed. 
she played this character named Sockhead, and she basically had sock puppet for a head and built up shoulders and built up whole body and stuff like that. And her body was fit into a taller person's body, and we just sort of figured out the design of the wardrobe to make it work. So the next step for me was figuring out if we could do that same idea with Karen Malkus, make that work so that we could have Billy's head get knocked off on Karen and then be able to cut right from that to Doug and have it be the same skinny person in the same proportions in the same silhouette backlit and, and have it work and have it not be too jarring. That worked out great. So it just felt like everything with Billy just, you know, one step flowed very gracefully into the into the next as far as figuring things out. And then it was all just a question of if the head comes off of Karen's head, what how does it connect? And we went with magnets so we could actually really kick it off. We made a fiberglass skull cap for her, a neck stump on it. So she kind of had this weird, like she looked like the top of a cigarette. Sort of. <laughs> um, and then she had this, this textured sort of surface at the top of the opening of the next stump. And then the shoulders were built up to about her eyebrows. And then Billy, his wardrobe was designed with sort of like this, not like an ascot, but sort of that sort of vibe of like this tied lace bow sort of at the neck. And because it was lace, we could put that right in front of Karen's face and she could literally see through it. That's perfect. Yeah, so she could breathe, she could see, she could act. We had to like move up her kneecaps with rods and make everything proportionate to Doug, build up her shoulders, change the length of the sleeve opening in the wardrobe so that her arms could go into the sleeves at a, a lower height than his, and just sort of figured it out. We had time really to figure out how to make those two match and those different elements sort of dictated some of the designs with the wardrobe. And Mary Vogt had already sort of done like this really cool watercolor sketch of the of the costume and she and I were like totally in sync like right away so Billy was just like literally like a dream come true kind of thing it just it worked so well and then the first time we did a, a test makeup on Doug it was the same day we had a wardrobe test fitting and all the wardrobe was brand new and clean and white and and they were just trying to get the proportions in tight we saw who he was and we, we could all see who Billy was and that he was going to be cool. And we had to figure out other stuff after that, like stitching his mouth shut and sticking mobs in his mouth and things like that. The cat was just chaos though. Just figuring out what, <laughs> what needed to be done. That was a, for all the good that was the zombie that thinks was just chaos. So, and then all the other stuff went away, you know, the old age makeups went away. The, the evil, which makeups went away. Kevin Haney ended up doing teeth for Bat and doing all of them sort of in, a, in, a, in an age makeup, but nothing like heavy prosthetic, just more textural and paint and contouring and stuff like that. But, you know, with really great wigs and stuff. We were working with people we knew on set and that just, it made it a really nice atmosphere. It was literally a dream job. The whole the whole thing was just an amazing experience to go on the lot at Disney and open the stage door to the set and having the set be a fully built, completely 360 degree cottage with a water wheel that worked with a little stream, with a road, with ground, with a graveyard and trees all the way around it. And then sykes around that. And then those stage walls painted behind that and walk in with everything lit. It was like you were walking into like a snow globe magic bubble, sort of like altered reality. When you walked in and all the lights were off and all the purple lights were up in the trees and everything, it, it was literally magic. It was unreal. We've heard a lot of people who have worked on the film say this is one of their favorite things and tell stories like that. But every time we hear it, it just sounds even more magical. The more people we speak with, this Halloween snow globe, I want to live in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. You know, when you go in and, the, and they had a little bit of fog going and, and the witches were hanging, it was just like, like literally on days where the zombie didn't work, I'd come up with an excuse to have to go walk <laughs> on set just to look around because, I mean, I'm Halloween obsessed, obviously. Anyhow, so just to, to be there, it was just such a great vibe. And, and we kept saying, this would be like such an awesome like Disney like theme park kind of thing. You know, like, keep it. Um, I said the same thing on the sequel. I'm like, keep the magic shop, you know, which was their, their cottage. And, and, like, 
put it somewhere and let people be able to to go to it. It'd be like the mad like the Mad Hatter store outside the little Alice in Wonderland ride. There's a Harry Potter world. Can't you do like a Hocus Pocus corner? <laughs> we want the full world. We deserve more than a corner. <laughs> Give us the world. <laughs> that would be such a dream. Did David tell you they offered him the house after the first film? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He, and he regrets not taking it. <laughs> yeah, he's like, you know what? If, if I had taken it, and, and his kids were little at the time too. He's like, I, I literally would have had to raise my backyard, get rid of the pool, and put the house in, and it would literally fill my entire yard. That would be it. He'd go out my door, and he'd go into the door of that house, and there'd be nothing else. And, and he's like, so that really kind of wasn't an option at the time, but now, you know, it's like, oh, if only, but it's like near an acre somewhere. So you made it sound like overall working with Doug as Billy and all of that process was relatively easy. I mean, for the, for yeah. us, that wouldn't be easy, but you're an expert. But you made it sound like Binks was a little harder. So tell us about that. <laughs> okay. Like, like Doug was great because it's like, okay, you figure out a character and you're going to glue this guy into it who's on board for the ride. You're going to glue him into this makeup as many times as they need him on set. And the hands were gloves. The wig went on really simple. Everything was pre-dressed and there were leaves already in the hair. The same leaves were in the hair when I pulled the wig out for the sequel, by the way. So that's like kind of like familiar territory, you know? And then with Binks, we were building animatronic cats to do human gesturing, basically, was the, was the original premise. So our idea was you would have a slave controller so that you could control the gross body movements of the cat with a sort of like a a separate little puppet version of it in front of you. And then the real one that's connected to all the motors would do the same movement in real time. And it's the same thing they did on Jurassic Park uh, in order to control the giant dinosaur and make the movements integrate together really well. And it worked great. So we built a full body cat that did that. Then we built a half body cat that you could put your hand in and move it around like a hand puppet as far as the, the body movement. It wasn't like, it didn't have to be locked down like the full body one. So it could sit on somebody's shoulder or sit on in a tree, something like that. Or it could just be a close up. And then when they wanted to go to extreme close up, we had this oversized cat head. And then we'd also done a suit of a cat that a person fit in. And the head was massive. We did a bunch of forced perspective tests with it, like Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings things, just very simple in camera, like somebody looking down and talking to the cat, and you're seeing the person looking down, and you're, the you, the camera, is over the shoulder of the cat, looking up at the human. And we forced, we did forced perspective, and we were able to make it look like the cat was listening, cocking its head, reaching up for the person, or like, gesturing in in conversation to the person and it worked really really well and then that same cat head uh, we were working on eyes that would dilate so that when like headlights came across it or whatever like et's eyes we could make the eyes respond to light just to make it look more realistic well the same time we were doing all that the world of cg was sort of launching and a company called Rhythm and Hughes was going to do some mouth replacement and then maybe some eye replacement to, to do some dialogue work on some of the real cats. And they realized they could do the same thing on ours if they wanted. Maybe ours wasn't a value. And then they wouldn't also have to build oversized backgrounds for the oversized cat head. So we did a film test with the full-size cat, and it was pretty straightforward because it was, it was life-size. We talked with Kenny about the idea of directing a team of puppeteers the same way you direct a troupe of dancers. Just talk to us as a collective, and we'll give you the performance that you want. That all went fine, and we took the real cat, and we used it for like being sitting out on the street and the bus rolling right up to him, or it's sitting on Omri's chest and the two of them talking stuff like that we also built cats that were inflatable or deflatable or you could run over them or we had one that was a lighting stand-in and then we had a couple of stunt ones that like bet could throw out of her off of her broomstick and into a tree so all the live action uh, or life-size cats that we built that matched traditional live action cat saw the light of day but all the oversized stuff went away because the CG was improving so much while we were in pre-production. They felt like they could use that for a lot of the, the dialogue. 
And that also would give them the freedom to change the dialogue later. So the cat in, ended up being sort of like a, a mix of technology, which is pretty cool and kind of how we do things nowadays anyhow. But Billy was pretty straightforward. The only real challenges were, you know, knocking his head off and filling his mouth full of moths and stuff like that. Hearing Doug talk about the moth scene is always funny. How he says that first time, it just it didn't work out. <laughs> it's it's interesting because it, it was like the first, I think the first take is actually what we used, to be honest. But there was one take where there's sort of a time limit on how long moths and powder and stuff can live in a latex reservoir inside your mouth. And uh, we passed that time limit on one of those takes. And as as Doug explains it. He opened his mouth to cough, and uh, it was more like he drooled some brown sludge, and some moths came surfing out on the surface of the of the sludge out of his mouth. Nobody really being able to fly, but it basically it was like a retainer, or like what today would be an Invisalign. You know, where you have an upper and you have a lower sort of shell that covers the teeth, and behind that we'd sculpted and made this latex sort of balloon that was sort of almost like a cup that the moths could fit into. And um, we put two holes in the back so they could blow air through it and that could help propel the moths forward out of his mouth. Then the idea was we would put powder in there to represent the dust. The moth wrangler would, would put the moths in, which he did with tweezers and he would stack them like books, like flat on top of each other in the mouth. And I think we were able to get four or five in there comfortably. And the powder was already in there. And then once the moths were in, we'd slide the tweezers out and then have him gently close his mouth. And then I had pre-applied the, the stitches to his upper lip and his lower lip and already cut them. And then I just glued the cut line back together. So he basically just takes the knife blade and drags it over that. And as he's dragging the blade over the, the stitching, opens his mouth and that causes the two halves of each stitch to separate. And then they added a little sound effect to help sell it. And then he would cough as hard as he could through that cup in his mouth and, and get the cloud of smoke to come out. There's a behind the scenes making of thing where you can actually see the very first take happening because it was a big what if, is this really going to work? You know, because we could theorize how it would work and, but it's not like we had, you know, moths we could go grab off the shelf and actually try so the first time we did it with all the components together was was on camera and of course they decided to film that because it was something new um, and so it was like pressures on and, the, and that first take it actually worked and then i think we did it two or three times after that and the, the very last time we did it was the moths surfing the slime trail out of his mouth because they just wait they tweaked the light or waited too long after it was set saliva just gets in there you know it was all real and the cloud the puff of smoke everything was all really there on set so it was an interesting experience not something you're asked to do every day and it was nice that we were actually able to, to pull it off was there a particular scene that you worked on that's your favorite I, I really enjoyed the, I like problem solving. So for me, the idea of figuring out how to knock his head off and then editorially be able to cut back to him, you know, putting his head back together, but it's just his body language pulling that off. But in the, in the middle of that, having Karen crawl on all fours across the ground and, and look proportionately okay to the camera, especially crawling. Stuff like that was, was definitely super challenging. I think my favorite scene was really more based on the people and the environment that we were in than, than anything we were doing. I, I loved literally every minute of doing Doug's makeup and then managing it, it on set and putting leaves in his hair or black food coloring into his mouth or whatever. Every bit of it was always just part of making this really cool character come alive which i guess he's not really alive but you know making it come to life was was really cool but i really i really enjoyed the exterior of the cabin and underneath the ground there was like a catacomb scene where he's down like in the sewer and he goes underneath the cemetery and there were all these coffins in the ceiling that were like sort of jacked you know they're, they're like basically falling through the ceiling slowly 
and some of them had like skeleton arms hanging out with like you know wardrobe on them like old like wedding dress kind of really cool old-fashioned clothing and that was a set that i i really liked i actually tried to talk them into giving that to me so i could turn that into my conference room <laughs> at work which, how cool <laughs> would that have been oh, which wow. would have made meetings very interesting <laughs> but i think my my favorite from a technical perspective was probably him, uh, his coffin rising up out of the ground and him coming out of it because there was the pneumatics of the, the ground moving. Then there were also lights involved inside for like the floorboards of the, the witch's floor yeah. for that same sort of effect. So there was a really cool rig that made all that work. And then there was a coffin in the middle of all that that was on its own separate riser that would push out. And then Doug had to be dressed into that, and then Moss had to be, and cobwebs had to be put on him. And then a lid had to go onto that that was breakaway, and then dirt and moss and grass had to go on top of that. And then it you know, it all went into the ground, and it's like you're sitting there talking to the ground, making sure that they're okay, <laughs> you know, before the, everything's ready to roll. You sort of become like, the parent of whatever the creature or character is that you're building, you want to make sure that it looks okay, obviously, but you want to make sure the person you've put in this thing is is all right as well and that they're healthy and safe and, and all that. So you become very parental in the whole makeup artist side of it. And I remember just wanting to make sure he was okay and that the thing would break away all right and you could get out of it if there was a problem and all that. I, but that was another one. Terry Frizzy, the special effects guy, I swear, like on the first time, they nailed it. The breakaway lid broke just right, and it was fantastic. But that was a really cool thing to be part of a process um, and work in collaboration with other people and then be able to pull it off. Doing the character with Doug, it's like once he's in it, I mean, he owns it. And, you know, makeup is a collaborative experience anyhow, but the person you put it on can make it or break it. They can make the character look and feel believable or, or not, you know? He just brought so much to it, like, every single day. It was fantastic. Oh, there was one other experience that was, like, a favorite, and it, it actually had nothing to do with the makeup. We would always come in early because Doug's makeup was a couple hours, right? And Margaret Prentice and I would do the makeup, and I guess we got done to about an hour and a half at one point. And then he would not wear the gloves until he had to actually work on set, but he'd wear the full outfit and would usually put the wig on him. So the cast got used to always seeing him as Billy Butcherson. The cast literally never met Doug Jones, like at all. And I remember there was a day where we finished early with Doug and they were still filming. And Doug always, Doug had this 1980s velour tracksuit that he would always wear for us to do the makeup. And it was like, off-white and cream yellow and it was like this two-tone thing it had makeup stains on it and it just looked kind of junky it was kind of like his i'll wear this when i get my makeup put on and and then i can change and i'm not getting glue or anything on my own clothes so he would wear that while we do the makeup and then a lot of times once we took the makeup off and he was going to go home he would put that back on because he's like i'll just throw it in the wash if i'm leaking makeup remover it doesn't get in my car and so we cleaned Doug off and he puts on his junky tracksuit and he's like, I'm going to go on set and watch what they're doing. I think they were doing some of the flying rig stuff that day. So he goes on set and Margaret and I finished cleaning up our little makeup trailer, which is all parked on the stage, which is like this tiny little trailer. So we walk out of that onto, onto the set. And I remember an AD, an assistant director came up to us and then, Later, I think one of the kids came up to us and they were like, there's this weird guy on set and, <laughs> and he's, he's talking to people and we don't know, is he part of your team? He, Get security. Because he acts like he, he's acting like he knows people. And, and I'm like, we don't have anybody here. It's the end of the day. We're wrapped. And it took, it took us like a couple minutes to figure out, oh my God, they're talking about Doug. Yeah, and Doug's talking to the kids because he works with them every day as a zombie. And they eventually everybody had this aha moment of awareness all at the same time. It was just really, really funny where they were just really concerned, like, how did this guy get on the lot? And who is he? And why is he Why is he just talking to people? So that's how everybody on the cast, you know, got to spend some time with the real Doug. Uh, it was quite a memorable uh, introduction. 
That shows how great your makeup was. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I thought it still would kind of look like him, but apparently not. <laughs> but Doug also had his hair, he trimmed his hair really short. You know, so it's, it's a very huge change in, in his silhouette. And he's not walking around all like, I'm a gangly zombie, he's just a normal guy and in, in really <laughs> gross clothes. So didn't help. But that was pretty funny. But the, the whole experience was awesome. I remember being completely tongue-tied trying to talk to Sarah Jessica Parker for whatever reason. I just couldn't, like, get out two words and, and not sound like an idiot. <laughs> I thought, you know, I was so self-conscious. And with Bette Midler, it was great. Another experience for me that was really a fantastic one was when they did the song. When they sang the song at the big town hall all of the we did a bunch of halloween masks that were used by a lot of the kids as trick-or-treaters but we did a skull mask that was actually worn by everybody in the band that's playing an instrument or pretending to play an instrument and then the the lead singer had his face made up but all the like the trumpeteer and everybody else all had our latex halloween masks on so i was up on stage making sure that you know they were being the parent making sure that they're getting air and getting stuff to drink and that they're comfortable and all that and just hold, you know, wrangling the masks when they weren't wearing them. So I got to stand on the stage and watch Bette Midler come through the crowd and go up to the stage and do her whole thing. And that was another one of those moments where it was just like, this, this is the coolest job in the world. And this is the coolest <laughs> show to, to be on. And all I'm here to do today is, is wrangle Halloween masks for people. And I couldn't be happier. It was so memorable and it's like it's sort of seared into your brain you know a lot of times you work on a film and you can watch a film 10 years later and go oh i was hiding behind the couch in that scene because i needed to be close by in case something came apart or whatever but hocus pocus is one of those ones where you get lost in the story and you forget where you were when they were filming but that one particular scene it's like i was right next to the camera i got to watch her do that and then i remember I had to go into her trailer to talk to her about something at one point because she had to handle something of ours. She had acrylic nails that were glued on every morning. They had somebody come in and glue the nails on her, and then at the end of every shooting day, the same person would come and remove them. Bet wanted the fingernails to be genuinely a part of the character and be solid, and for her to be able to grab stuff and move around and not ever have to think about her character coming apart in any way. So she was really committed to to making sure that all that stuff looked good and felt real, especially since she had to handle that book and it's so big and unwieldy. And I'll give her credit. She stayed, she came in early and she left late every day just to make sure that her character was like 100% all the time. Yeah, and, and she was super sweet. And then this go around, still the exact same person, just a wonderful, wonderful human being. One of the nicest people and so talented and, and no ego about it. Just, it's part of her life, and she's good at it. Is there anything from the original film, or even the sequel, actually, that you've kept that you could possibly tell us about? Yeah, well, after after the first film, after Hocus Pocus, the original, I kept all the, the molds for Billy's character, his prosthetics, because that's what you do. But I also kept his wig. I kept one of his wigs. Disney kept one, and I kept one. Uh, when it came time to do the sequel, I still had mine. <laughs> <laughs> And I still had the, the piece of fabric, the tie in the back, and it still had leaves in it and everything else. And I, I just put it away in a box and, and kept it, you know, still with all the crazy hairspray in it and everything. It was packed so that you, you pulled it out of the box and, and you could put it right back That's on. Amazing. So we used it in the sequel. When, when it was time to do the character again, I was like, I, I know how we can make sure the hair matches and, and pulled out the original wig. And then we had to make a duplicate for the, the dummy head, but I continued to hang on to that first one since. And then for the sequel, I really wanted to do the book because I felt like book in the first one was cool, but I thought it could be cooler, you know, connected with the prop department. Ralph Winter was gracious enough to sort of steer me in the right direction to talk to people about the opportunity to make book for the sequel. Got to make it and make a stunt version, a couple duplicates, and then there's ones in the magic shop that are that are like prop books and we made all of those as well but we had to make a few extras to to figure out paint schemes and stuff like that and 
There were a couple upgrades. Nelson Coates, the production designer, wanted to make, like the corner protectors or the clasp or things like that. But everybody wanted to stay pretty true to it. It was really more about sort of refining the area around the eye and then changing some of the hardware more than anything else. So you got to kind of like smooth out the eye area and all that. We ended up making two books. One is with the eye open and one was with the eye shut. And then anytime it moves, they were going to do that digitally. So that was sort of the upgrade from between the first film and the, and the sequel. The idea was that the clasp would open up and then that whole section where the eye is could be removable and you could swap out a closed one or an open one. And then it was like, no, we'll just make one of each and we'll just keep track of which one they're holding. And both of them were fully functional and they opened and um, had pages in them. And the art department did this amazing job with the pages. I remember after we built the book and made sure the clasps and everything closed, they couldn't be adjustable because they're metal, right? You can't like adjust the clasp. So we had to take out some pages because once they treated the pages to age them, all the paper swelled up a little bit and the book wouldn't close all the way. Some pages had to go out. So one or two of those extra pages might have gone away somewhere. Um, I wonder. Gone away. <laughs> if you find them, let us know, Tony. <laughs> I will. I, definitely, I, I remember going, this would be cool on a t-shirt because it would be like the spell to turn Thackeray Binks into a That'd cat. so cool. Or... Or the other spell that they read in the in the movie, you know, and it's like that that would be an awesome thing to be able to wear around. But we we had we have all the molds for some of that stuff, and we have a bunch of the tests, and then when we made the prop books. They made a, a change in proportion, so there were a couple of extras of those. But I think ultimately all that stuff went back into archives for them. So nothing from the sequel was able to be stored by anybody other than Disney. They're very focused on their property and keeping track of it and making sure it's always presented in the best light and it's stored properly. I mean, when we were doing book for the sequel and we were making the ones for the Magic Store display, we actually went to the archives and they still had it. And it's really weird because you're on set working with this thing and everybody's just passing it around and it's sitting on a chair to the left of bet when it's not being used and you don't think twice about it. And then you 28 years go by and you want to use it. You want to take a look at it as reference because you're getting to build book for the sequel. And all of a sudden it comes out of this vault and these people have white gloves <laughs> on and it's wrapped in this stuff. And there's this clean space where they place this wrap on the table and they open it up and then they only touch it. They can only touch it with their white gloved hands. And you're like, I, I just want to measure the clasp and make sure we're okay and the thickness of the pages. And, and and all of a sudden, it's this sort of holy grail sort of item that's sort of funny. And for a brief moment, I was worried we were, I wasn't going to get my original billy wig back because it, it looked like it was going down the holy grail road. But I, I managed to, to keep that. The head that got cut off of Billy from the first film is actually in David Kirshner's study i rebuilt his whole body and used that head and, and neck piece that karen wore on that body and then put the original wardrobe on it and that head had the original stunt wig on it so david has a com complete billy butcherson although uh, his dog chewed the exposed toes <laughs> off of david didn't tell us that <laughs> <laughs> <No>. yeah. <laughs> he was very kind enough to show us that and my goodness you did an incredible job it looked beautiful it looked like billy was creeping behind david while we talked to him <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of funny because david was doing meetings for like the last 10 years i would go to his house and i would load billy into my car into an suv i would truck him out to disney and set him up in the room for david to have his meeting and i would go like hang out in the lobby go back in and pick up Billy <laughs> and haul him back to, to David's place and set him up. And I have to say that after 28 years, the fact that he's still solid and I, I banged him against a few, a few walls on my, <laughs> on his trips. He's held together exceptionally well. It's amazing. And before we carry too much into the sequel, Tony, did you ever think Hocus Pocus would have such a cult following nearly 30 years after its release? What was that magic that made it such a timeless classic? I think there's a couple of things that make it a timeless classic. I didn't expect it to be. I remember going to the screening and I, I was so attached to the original script that Mick Garris wrote and it was so dark. 
I remember going to the cast and crew screening, remembering stuff in my head that I wasn't seeing on screen and, and feeling like there were holes in it. And it's like, but it still works as a film and, and all the characters are really good and they're really solid and the relationship between all the kids is, is really great. The relationship between the three sisters that are the witches are really great. And Doug was a great in-betweener for, for both of those. I remember thinking it still really works. And then I remember them releasing the film in July. And, and I remember thinking, this is probably not going to do very well. It's a Halloween movie. Why is it coming out so early? And it didn't do well. And, and I remember being really bummed and hoping that people would see it because I was really proud of what we'd done and so many other things of, that were in the film, you know? And then once it came out on DVD and Disney started putting it up, it sort of started getting this sort of Wizard of Oz vibe to me where it was like something that you really look forward to. And for people like me that like Halloween to have a seasonal movie come out that, that's something that you really enjoyed, that the whole family can see, that sort of made it really special to me. And then I think over time, as people grow up and, and they like something, you know, you share it with your kids. And after 28 years, the kids have kids and, and or younger friends. And, and it just gets seen by so many people and so many people enjoy it and appreciate it. Honestly, the witches and the zombie to me are, are kind of magic. To have been able to be a part of that to any degree, it's it just it feels so great. It's it's weird to have a film that you worked on be known by people older than you and and the kids of your friends' kids that are like six years old and they want to dress as <laughs> Winifred Sanderson and Billy Butcherson for Halloween. It's just, it's an experience like I've never had. The only thing that comes close to that is having worked on the Child's Play films for the last 18 years. And again, those go back to David Kirshner and the genius of his mind being able to take ideas and, and, and make something fresh and engaging out of them. I'm involved with two franchises that only exist because of him and both have kids that dress up as characters that you've created or built or perform. That's just an, an awesome, feel-good kind of moment. Better to be have a kid dressing as a zombie than a psycho killer <laughs> doll with a knife, but it's still it's it's kind of cool to be part of pop culture in a way. You know, we we designed the helmets for Daft yes. Punk, so we sort of had that same experience in the in the music industry, and did the Cavemen for Geico that ran like for fifteen years. So. I feel like we've been very fortunate in being able to experience quite a few of those sort of things and, and having them all be so different, but still, other than Chucky, for the most part, like very family friendly and enjoyed by people of all ages and races and locations, yes. you know, uh, media has allowed it to be seen everywhere and uh, everybody responds to it because it's it's a quality product. So kind of cool to be part of that. Definitely. So moving on to Hocus Pocus 2, we don't want to spoil anything. So just very generally, you're you're back as the makeup department head and designer of the upcoming Hocus Pocus sequel, which is coming out very, very soon. Um, How was it returning to the original story so many years later with some of the original cast and crew after almost three decades? It was really cool to go back after, after so much time. Doug Jones and I actually brought Billy back to life a couple of years ago for uh, a fundraiser for Bette Midler. Bette Midler's Halloween special. That was great. And we filmed it in my shop. Uh, my daughter, Kira Gardner, directed Doug against a green screen in the back of the shop. And then I did his makeup in the front of our shop. And we just kept, Doug and I just kept laughing. It's like, who would have thought 27 years ago at the time, we'd be recreating this, let alone in our own space with my daughter directing. And that was kind of like a, a great moment where it's like, well, they're probably never gonna make a sequel. So at least we get this, this is pretty awesome. And then like within a, a year, all of a sudden this, you know, the, the sequel is coming up. And Doug and I were so excited that we were gonna be able to, to do it again. I didn't have any expectations beyond doing Doug. I knew Zachary Binks had moved on to the afterlife. So there was nothing there. Rest his soul. <laughs> yeah, but having been in these meetings I've uh, been on the periphery of David's meetings over 10 years. I knew too, the story kept changing and the concept of the witches kept changing and whether there or not there would be a Billy Butcherson in the story kept changing because scripts get rewritten so often. So it's like you, you hold on with sort of bated breath 
that by the time you're you're filming, all the witches are going to be back, and Billy Butcherson's going to be back. Who in the cast of the kids is gonna is going to make it in? And there's so many other factors that make a difference. But to be able to go back and be part of that. And then have Adam Shankman also producing, who did Hairspray, which we did the bodysuit and makeup on John Travolta for. Um, and then Anne Fletcher directing Hocus Pocus 2. And she was already directing when we did Hairspray, but she sort of slummed it for Adam and was the choreographer and was amazing. So I, got, I already knew her as well. So it's like, all right, I'm, I'm going in knowing... Ralph Winter, the producer, David Kirshner, the producer, Doug Jones, the zombie. I'm going to work on Doug. Nobody else on the crew besides us. Then we heard John Debney was going to do the score again. So it's like, okay, here's the old guard. And then all the witches came on board. And it's like, okay, we're, we're literally, we're back. But there, you could count the old guard on two hands. And then we're working with a crew that like reveres the movie that grew up watching what we had done. So this environment was so ridiculously positive and upbeat all the time. And Anne Fletcher and her producers are upbeat, positive people anyhow, and very passionate about what they do. And it just made the entire experience really great. Like from the beginning of the first meetings and Zooms and design discussions and all that. But but then to get to set, to fly in, get to set, and all of a sudden Billy Butcherson's makeup trailer went from being this tiny little wood paneled thing with a window probably this big in it, fit a folding makeup chair and a makeup station on wheels with like a square of lights around it. To go from that to, hey, Billy Butcherson has a whole makeup trailer that we can fit all his bodysuits in and head rig and it has a bathroom in it and it has a makeup station and it has a living room and there's room for all of us to be in there to bring this character to life with good lighting and air conditioning and Billy got an upgrade and then to go from that and open the doors and then walk into the armory where this the forest had been built was genuinely mind-blowing but then to go to the stage where the Sanderson sisters cottage was built and to walk into that and feel like 28 years didn't happen, that was like literally the most unreal experience because they had done such a faithful job inside putting everything together. And Nelson Coates, the production designer, got really into what was appropriate for molding on the exterior and stuff like that. And there were a couple of things that were tweaked, but you'd walk out the front door and it was a real front door and you were on a street and there was a car parked there and you turn around and the cottage was the same, and it was just mind-blowing. It was like you felt like literally no time had passed. And then once you had Doug in the makeup, not that Doug has aged any anyhow. He's he's like a timeless human being. And, and we used his same body cast and his same hand cast because he hasn't put on a pound in 28 years. He looks exactly the same. To put the makeup on him and have him look, and we were so, I was so obsessed with making sure it was, completely accurate. I didn't want any fan to ever go, that wrinkle's in the wrong spot. I didn't want any of that. I wanted all the materials to be the original materials. The same leather. I, I still had the same leather strapping in a bag and, and use that for the stitches. Why I still had it, I don't know. You know? <laughs> you knew this day was coming. <laughs> yeah, but I was I was super obsessed. It was like we had his, his original body cast. We sculpted his, his legs and arms on that. I had his original hand cast. We sculpted on that. We did. We had a new head cast of him, but we also had his old one, and they didn't look any different. One was lighter. That was that was it, you know. And then to have the same leather, the same wig, to use the same sort of foam, and to do it in foam, to not upgrade it to silicone, but to do it in foam, so that it looked the same way on set. That was also important to me, and to be able to have all that, to be able to do that was really, really cool. And then to have him walk onto those sets was pretty amazing. But then to have the witches show up, but to, to see everything just sort of like come together on set, I, it's a feeling that I don't think I would have known how to describe 27 years, 28 years ago now, or I can really articulate really well now because... You're with people that you genuinely love and you're doing what you love and you're, you're working on a project that you have love for. And it, it's just like the best feeling in the world. And, and you're working with new people. You're bringing new people into that fold and also 
some of them you already know, like Anne, and you're being able to share something that you like with them and work on it together. It's just, it's such a great feeling. It's like, I, I feel like in an industry like ours, you don't get that experience very often. And, and I feel so fortunate to have been able to have that experience twice and have them both be different, but both feel so much a part of like who I am. You know, the Hocus Pocus poster that's behind you, Ali, has been like in my office for 28 years. And it's been in the background of my Zooms and stuff like that. And it's and it's never changed. I've changed the frame, but it's been the same original poster. And Doug Jones's wig has been on a wig head in my makeup room for almost as long, you know? And, and then to be able to pull out your old stuff and put on the show again for a whole new audience, it's kind of magical. So thankful that you were able to preserve those things because just like have we talked about how it's so important to have John back to do the music to keep that consistency. When we saw the first picture of Billy released and we saw that clip of him in the trailer, like it does not look like a single minute has passed. We picked up November 1st, 93. Here we are again. To, To be out in the graveyard at night, to be out in a real graveyard at night with him in makeup and we're wandering around the gravestones that we found we found his grave. And we're like, hey, here it is. <laughs> it was so surreal. And then there were there were people that we were friends with, local, that had friends outside the barricades that were watching us. And the connection said, let me send you a video footage of you walking around on set five minutes ago. And it's me walking around on set with, with Doug pointing at one of the, the grave things going, oh, I wonder if this one's real or if this one's part of the set because we were filming in a real graveyard. It was weird to have like a mob. I worked on Thriller when I was 18 and, and I remember the barricades and people and people yelling and stuff like that. And that was my introduction to, to the film industry. That was the first job that I ever did. I worked for Rick Baker and I got to be a zombie in it. And it was like a magical experience for me. And then to be out in a graveyard with Doug in costume and us wandering away from the film shoot, just wandering through the headstones and having the police barricades off in the distance and people cheering because they recognized somebody. It wasn't me. It was Doug, obviously. It was like, wow, this is like, uh, this is like no time has passed. And, and it felt really good. I am one of those weirdos that has a Halloween tree in my house. My kids grew up. Hey, hey, hey. That does not make you weird. That makes you normal here. Okay, I've had it for 40 years. So at one point, I was the weirdo. Fine. Now, you started the trend. Now the crowd has, has grown that I'm a part of. We did 3D scans of Doug's head and 3D scans of the original book from Hocus Pocus. I made ornaments to, to put on my Halloween tree. Oh, my goodness. Those must be beautiful. I tried to get them in the magic shop in the movie, but the box got lost in delivery. But I thought, oh, it would be really cool to to be able to share this. And my goal now is to connect with Disney marketing and be allowed to do some sort of limited edition from the artists that brought you this for the screen, the actual real thing. I still have one of the heads from Binks, the furred head skin of Binks. I still have part of the mechanics from Binks. I, I did a scan of that. I made an ornament of that. You know, um, we made one of the black flame candle. It's like that's part of my Halloween tree at home every year, and it's been part of my kids' life growing up. Now they're more accurate because I was able to do a makeup on Doug and 3D scan him. It's like I'd love to be able to share that with people. It's like I'd love to be able to go walk through the Sanderson sisters' magic shop or a cottage or whatever it would be and be able to watch people experience. I really enjoy watching people enjoy what you've created. I mean, I think that's just part of being an artist. That's why you create. I would love to see like spin-offs, and I feel like there's stories that you could tell with the witches. There's stories you could tell with Doug. There's stories you could tell that's more of his origin as well, and, and his relationship with the sisters. I feel like there's a lot of that kind of stuff. It would, it would be cool to... To see, and I don't know that I would necessarily need to be a part of it, but I would love to see it happen. But I would thrill to be able to like make some some art pieces that people could enjoy. And so you've worked on so many projects. We've talked about a few here. You've worked from Hocus Pocus, Hairspray, Adam's Family, the Child's Play Chucky series, The Craft, La La Land, and that is just a few. Do you have a favorite? Which one's your favorite? Hocus Pocus is my favorite, to be honest. Yes, 
just it's literally a, a magical experience and and i'm a halloween geek i think i think immediately after that as far as the genre stuff probably adam's family again because it was a group of wonderful people and we got to create stuff that that could live in my house you know and, and does live in my house and and around halloween time and and just that sort of tim burton david kirshner vibe kind of stuff i i really enjoy I really enjoyed movies like The Craft and stuff like that, working on those. Um, but I think Adam's Family and its sense of humor and just overall scope to me is it just holds a very near and dear place in my heart next to the larger space that Focus Pocus uh, <laughs> currently occupies. And according to your IMDb profile, it feels like you've worked on at least 50% of every movie that's ever come out. <laughs> but <laughs> if you could choose to work on a movie that you hadn't worked on... <laughs> Past, present, or future, what would that be? When I was a kid, I, the original Planet of the Apes was a big inspiration. And so was Alien and also The Howling. So if I could do something with aliens and werewolves, I would be genuinely thrilled. But I have to say, too, there's like the genre stuff genuinely holds a place in my heart. Like we did both the Zombieland movies. The zombies are like sort of non traditional, it's more of like medical kind of stuff. Again, the experience, like working with Woody Harrelson and Abigail Breslin and everybody else, and then to be able to create zombies and tear people apart or do whatever. Um, that's the kind of stuff that I would have been doing as a kid, making movies in the neighborhood with my friends. And, and now I'm an adult and I got somebody to pay me to do that. <laughs> I, I not only get to do it and people get to see it, but somebody paid me to do it. And it's like, to be able to make a living doing what you love is is a very great thing, and and it's something I've always impressed upon our kids. If you can find your passion and then figure out how to make a living doing that, you're not going to work ever. You're doing what you love and providing for yourself, doing what you love, and that to me is kind of everything. I was actually curious if after all these years, when you returned to Hocus Pocus two, was there anything that you found easier or harder compared to when you did it in 1993? That's a good question. I, I feel like everything felt easier as far as Doug because I, I very much felt a comfort zone with that. It was more difficult not having the original source material to like to have a head of him and be able to just transpose that. Trying to be accurate for the fans was like my obsession. But with the book, I, I went through this whole loop of the book was really hard because it's like there's things I want to prove on but I realized the fans expectation is the same as with Billy they want to see the same thing and I would always default to what would the fans want and the fans want what they've seen on screen for 28 years so the goal was to be as true to that as possible but that was definitely the most stressful part but I, the entire experience was enjoyable and I felt like it was over way too fast way too fast it's like I waited so long for this and wait we're done but there's some fun stuff in it too with with Billy that we got to do that that's new that we didn't get to do last time. It's just sort of riffing on things that have happened in the past. But you never know when they'll call you back for HP three, so keep that phone line open. <laughs> yeah, this needs to be all about a zombie. This is this is another one of my ideas. Why can't there be a female zombie brought back to life in the <sighs> graveyard by the spell? that's part of his family, or maybe it was his wife or something. And there's a whole zombie family and a whole zombie family dynamic. Let's do it. In the real <laughs> contemporary world with the kids trying to figure out how to keep these people in their own little bubble so they can finish off their, their lives. You know what I mean? I, I've had all sorts of weird ideas like that. So if that's a spinoff I'm waiting to see. Yeah, Disney, if you're listening, I got some really great ideas. I just see Disney, her like, call Tony. Yeah, I just see her like with a bustle and the whole the whole deal, just old rotted clothes. It could be so cool. So other than Hocus Pocus 2 coming out very soon, tell us what other projects, and you have some Child's Play stuff going on. So what else are you working on and what should you be excited to see from Tony? My company's name, I own a business with my wife, Cindy, and it's called Alterian. And we do makeup effects and animatronics. And Billy's makeup effect and Chucky's literally a robot he's an animatronic with a skin on it and he's also a puppet and they're both coming to theater or tv screen I guess really near you within a couple weeks of each other this year we have season two of child's play 
But the season starts October 5th. Hocus Pocus comes out September 30th. And then we did this film for Netflix that's called Curse of Bridge Hollow. But it's basically Marlon Wayans is a dad and has a family moving into a, a neighborhood that's Halloween obsessed. There's this curse from the past and it's sort of reignited and it brings all the Halloween decorations in the town to life. And this, this Marlon and his daughter have to team up and figure out how to fight this evil entity. And then his basic army of, of things that you can't kill. It's like, how do you deal with that? But we got to bring so many, we got to do zombies and scary clowns and all sorts of crazy stuff. And as well as the, the main evil character, but that comes out like October 15th. And then we did Halloween Horror Nights at Universal Studios did a maze that's a combo of a movie we worked on called Freaky and another movie that Blumhouse did called Black Phone. They did a maze that's a combo of the two of those sort of together. So a bunch of, you know, it's a serial killer movie, so a bunch of people die in it. <laughs> and they walked us through the, the test drive of the maze and we got to see their recreations of all of our murder scenes, basically as well as the killer's mask and a whole bunch of stuff. And that was really cool to see. And that's already open. We also did some limited edition products for Halloween Horror Nights, like exclusive like art pieces that they have in one of their stores. I feel like we're kind of all over the place for Halloween this year, which is really fun. And it's all genre stuff. And it's a theme park and it's TV shows and it's a maze and products it's like art pieces and limited editions and it's really nice so we've been busy now we got to figure out what we're going to do after after october i guess you're gonna need some time off so you relax this, oh, this yeah. winter <laughs> oh yeah for sure. and we like to end here tony with a quick lightning round so i'm just going to ask you a question say oh, the God. first thing that comes to mind it's not a quiz it's fun it's fun <laughs> all hocus pocus related favorite sanderson sister uh winifred uh winnie uh <laughs> sarah uh, oh <laughs> Uh, different reasons for each, but Winifred first. Fair enough. Favorite non-Sanderson Hocus Pocus character? Zachary Binks. Do you prefer human Binks or cat Binks? I thought human Binks was very charming and really grounded the cat and made made the cat have the foundation that he did. So I, I, I think they kind of go hand in hand, though, to be honest. Billy or headless Billy? <laughs> oh, Billy. <laughs> no offense to Karen Malkus, but definitely Billy. What is your favorite holiday aside from Halloween? Wow, it would be Christmas. And your favorite Halloween candy? Anything chocolate. Anything chocolate. I know David Kirshner would say candy corn. (laughs) Not a candy corn fan. (laughs) And uh, your favorite Halloween movie? Oh, Jesus. You can say it. It's Hocus Pocus. It's Hocus Pocus. (laughs) What can I say? That'll go on TV first, and then it'll be Nightmare Before Christmas. There you go. And our last and possibly most important question with the sequel coming out very soon. Hocus Pocus or Hocus Pocus 2? Um, I haven't seen Hocus Pocus 2 yet. Okay. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I love the, the original. It would have to be the original because it holds such a, a magical place in my heart uh, just for the sheer experience of it. I was I was in my 30s and and it was one of my first chances to, to create a, a title character and, and then to have it be Disney and Halloween and the sets be as magical and the cast be as amazing as as they all were. I don't think I could top that. I hope Hocus Pocus 2 tops it. It would be an awesome thing. But my relationships with people go back to the first one. That'd be my default. Awesome. Well, we'll check in with you after HP2 comes out to get your final answer on that. <laughs> Enough of a non-committal disclaimer. <laughs> I love that. Awesome. Well, Tony, thank you so much for sharing such wonderful stories with us. It's such, such a fun experience okay. to chat about Billy Banks and all these fun other things. So we really appreciate your time. And we are very excited to see the magic you make for Hocus Pocus 2. Uh, thank you very much. And and keep up doing what you guys are doing. It's it's pretty magical as well. And, and it's great that people get a place to go to to hear this. And, and what you have done online is just amazing. Oh, thank you. I, I check out your stuff probably every day. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. That's such an honor to hear from you that we have an, an honorary member of the Black Flame Society checking us out. Well, it's oh, amazing. Oh, sure, yeah. It is. It is. Where's my t-shirt? <laughs> Where's your t- you, you email me your address. You'll get your t-shirt. We just launched our merch. You send it over. I'll send you one as quick as possible. Oh, I'll wear it on a set and I'll take a picture. Oh, yes, oh my yeah. gosh. That would be incredible. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be the Hopefully it'll be the set of Hocus Pocus 2. We'll, we'll Hopefully we'll be there right beside you doing yeah. something there. <laughs> yeah, that would be amazing. That's a great idea. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tony. It was a pleasure. Thank you.
Likewise. Thanks for having me. There it is. Thank you so much to Tony for joining us and talking all things Hocus Pocus. We are so excited to see how Billy comes back to life in Hocus Pocus 2 and the role he played in making that magic come on screen. Oh my goodness, it's really happening, everybody. We will be back with a special episode for you this Sunday, September 25th, and we'll be back next Wednesday with a full speculation episode right before HP2 drops on September the 30th. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll speak soon. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Black Flame Society. To never miss an episode, follow along on Instagram at the Black Flame Society podcast, like and subscribe on your favorite streaming service, and join our mailing list to be the first to know what's coming next. Thank you for being part of the society. Until next time. The Black Flame Society podcast is not affiliated with Disney or any other related conglomerates yet. Feel free to change that. Give us a call.